listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and then suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with people working in the grief field. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. This is another in our series on how the approach to supporting grieving children has or hasn't changed over time. We started with the 1940s, then we jumped ahead to the 1970s, made our way back to the 1960s, and today we're going to be checking out the 50s. If you missed the first three, be sure to go back and give them a listen. In 1955, Jack was 10 and living with his mother in Oklahoma. She and Jack's father adopted him when he was just a tiny infant, which meant that she was the only mother that he knew. Jack's mother and father got divorced when he was really young, so for the most part, she was also his only parent. One night, Jack's mother died suddenly and very unexpectedly of a heart attack, leaving him not only in deep grief, but also unsure of what life would look like and who he would live with. Jack, thank you for joining me today to talk about what it was like to be a grieving kid in the 1950s. My pleasure. Your story is really unique in in many ways. I mean, you're living with a single mother in the 1950s. You were adopted as an infant. And then you were also the one that found your mom and needed to run for help. In the 60 years since she's died, a lot's happened and changed in your own world. Looking back, what do you remember about your mom and, and what kind of mother was she? Well, that's a hard question because, first of all, I was very young, but um, we were poor. I mean, she had gone to college but didn't have a degree and was not a professional. When I was really young, we lived with my grandparents well, until they died. Then it was just she and I. Uh, we moved into a little duplex, just the two of us, and life was pretty good. I mean, as a kid, I had always known that I had been adopted. I felt kind of special because of that. I remember my mother and dad uh, telling me when I was very young, they didn't just have me, they picked me. My mom was hardworking, and I think she had kind of a hard life. But she always loved me. I always knew it, and uh, yeah, she was she was really a, a good mom. In this series, we've talked a lot with folks about how they find out that the person died. What did, what were the words that people used? How was it described to them? And then your story is different in the fact that you were right there. What do you remember about that night that she died, and how the adults in your world talked to you about it? My mom had been sick for a couple of days and had spent some time in bed. Uh, For me, my life kind of went on as normal, and I remember that day I rode my bicycle further than I had ever ridden it out to the Oklahoma City fairgrounds. I came back home, and she was in bed asleep. And But I remember her asking me to grab her pills from off of the commode. I didn't know that word. I didn't know what that meant. The and word thought, commode? The word commode. I'm still not sure what that word is. It's a toilet. Okay. <laughs> um, 
And so I didn't know what the word commode meant. So I just kind of blew that off. And I've had some questioning or guilt over the years if that may have contributed to the fact that she died. I went to bed as, as normal that night, and I woke up sometime in the middle of the night. She was on the floor next to my bed. There was a vodka bottle on the floor. I just thought she had gotten drunk and passed out. So I went next door to, the, to my neighbors and got the adult over there, and he came over and he said, she's not just asleep, I think she's really sick. It's a little blurry how it happened, but somehow my aunt, who lived at, also lived in Oklahoma City, was there, and she, they took me into the bedroom away from where my mother was, and she talked to me for a while and said my mom was really sick. After the EMTs left, she took me across the street to my friend's house, and I spent the night there. When I woke up the next morning and came out, my aunt was there, and she sat me down and just said, told me that my mother had died. You know, she asked me if I understood what that meant, that she was, that she was dead, she was gone. And I did. I don't think I cried in some weird way. I don't think I was surprised. You weren't surprised in that your mom had been sick for a few days, or you weren't surprised because you knew that night that something really bad was happening? Well, both of those things. My mother was a functioning alcoholic in that she held down her job, but she would drink and get drunk. And, I mean, they say that children of alcoholic parents kind of become the rescuers, and I really did try to take care of her that way. But also, you know, I knew she was something serious had happened when I found her on the floor. I guess I went to sleep with that possibility in my mind that she might have died. Looking back on that first night and that first morning after your aunt told you that your mom had died, what were some of the thoughts that were most on your mind? What were you thinking about or wondering about? Well, the biggest question for me was, where am I going to live? It was just she and I. She had a sister, my Aunt Betty. She had a son who was six years younger than me, a daughter who was seven years older. They had what to me was kind of the perfect family. So that was where I wanted to go live. My dad was sort of my mother's drinking partner, I think. He lived about 100 miles away. He had remarried. As a kid, I knew him. I mean, he was present occasionally in my life, but I just didn't like him. You know, after my mother had died, uh, I went and stayed with another aunt all sort of sat around and talked about where I would like to live. I wanted to live with my Aunt Betty and Uncle Jim, but they told me that my dad had first dibs, and if he wanted me, I had to go live with him. He came up for the funeral, and he wanted me. So, you know, after the funeral, we got in the car, drove to Tulsa, and that was that. Right after the funeral, yeah. you had to go yeah. and move. And how did that turn out? Um, well, he really tried. I mean, I the thing, the, the irony in all this about my relationship with him is that I always knew that he really loved me. But something about him just creeped me out. There was never anything inappropriate with me in any way. 
I just didn't like him. He had remarried. He was married to a lovely woman. You know, I made friends, but I just didn't want to be there. That wasn't how I, it didn't feel right for my life. And how did that finally change or resolve itself? He was a traveling salesman. He would come home drunk, bring me presents, and I really hated that. I would cry and I would say, I don't want to be here. I want to live with Aunt Betty and Uncle Jim. He would say, okay. And then the next morning when he had sobered up, he wouldn't, he would back out of that deal. Finally, he didn't back out of it. He called them and they said they would love to have me, but only if they could legally adopt me. They didn't want any back and forth. Any or... back and forth. When he took me to the bus station for me to go to Dallas, where my aunt and uncle lived. The guy got on the bus with me, with my little suitcase, and kneeled down next to my seat on the bus and said, are you sure you want to go? Are you sure you don't want to stay with me? And I told him, yeah, I did want to go. And I walked, he gave me a kiss, he walked off the bus, and I saw him through the window kneeled down at a bench and cry. I mean, just, and it it really broke my heart. In those moments, you know, I sat there and thought, maybe I should go, because this really hurts him. But I didn't. The door of the bus closed, we drove off, and I only saw him once or twice after that when he came to visit us. It's a lot of um, responsibility and decision-making at, at 10 and 11 years old. It was kind of one of those moments that has stuck in my life. I mean, finding my mother that year in limbo where I was, where I really didn't want to be, and then that moment, I mean, the bad thing about it was it made me very sad to see him weep. On the other hand, you know, it really was a turn of the page for me. A step towards self-preservation. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of sadness about your mom's death. How else did your grief show up or what did it look like when you were 10, 11, 12? Well, when when I was little, I mean, and probably in the last, I don't know, the last year or so before my mother died, uh, she and I went to a drive-in movie and I'm sure i probably fell asleep before the end of the movie, but there on the screen in black and white, there was a a little girl had lost her dad in the war. She would look in the mirror and see him and made her really happy. Well, I, I knew that that wasn't real, but in moments when I was private, I would look in that mirror and wish her to show up. And of course, she never did, but... As a kid, my, my aunt, who had become my mother, she and my mother had had some kind of rivalry when they were kids. Mm. My aunt was the, the beauty queen. My mother was the blue-collar younger daughter, I guess. She didn't really like to talk to my, about my mother. And when, when I would be really bad and say, my mother never would have treated me this way, she would ask me, do you know what your mother was? And I go, I know exactly what my mother was. I mean, I'm, I'm 12 years old. 
daring her to say something bad about my mother. And what did you think she was going to say? That she was an alcoholic, mm. that she was a drunk. She just never would, you know, that she would back away from that, but that was that was sort of me protecting my mother who I always cherished. So there wasn't really a lot of room for you to talk about your mom as a whole person because you had to protect that part of her. Absolutely. After she had died, but I, I mean, right at, before the funeral, right after she had died, everybody sort of set me down in the living room and the preacher says, well, you know, your mother's happy now. She's in heaven. So you can go on with your life, which was... Just wrap it up in a couple hours. Sure. Like, ten. let's wrap this up in 10 minutes. But I was always pretty self-contained, and I knew how I felt inside, and I knew the place where I held her even then, and so it was okay with me. I figured they, they wouldn't understand anyway. How has your relationship with your mother, your mother who died, changed over the years? My relationship with my mother has been kind of a linear progression over the last 60 years. I always hung on to her memory, and I kept her in this very special place. I I had remarried when I was about 33 years old, I think, and I married a woman who had little two-year-old twin daughters. When they were about seven, we went back to Oklahoma City. My wife and daughters and I drove out to the cemetery where my mother was buried. And I had not been there since the day of her funeral. You know, it's just in an old part of Oklahoma City. I had no idea how to find her. The the cemetery office was closed. And we sort of drove around. And as we were about to leave, I stopped the car, and I, I don't know, I saw a tree. It had been 25 years since she had died, since I'd been there. But something just told me she's over there. And I stopped the car, I I walked across the cemetery, and I walked right to her headstone. You just instinctually knew where it was. it, It was a very strange thing. Seeing her name there really took me back. to that day, and choked me up, and I sat down next to her headstone and cried. I felt something behind me, and I turned around, and one of the twins was there, and she's bawling. (laughs) And I said, honey, come and sit down here with me, and let me tell you about her. Well, the other twin came, and the three of us really had a special moment told them all about her. I told her all about them. I told her about my life. I told her I hoped that she was proud of the man I became. It was probably the most special moment with or about my mother since her funeral. That kind of validated everything. It brought all this grief out into the open. Since then, I go back every year or two to Oklahoma City to visit my sister, and I always go see my mother. Usually I go by myself, and I'm able to just sit down and talk with her. It's been a very important part of my adult life. 
to be able to, in a sense, build this relationship with your mother. Yeah. I mean, to kind of rebuild that relationship. You know, my memories of her as a child were through the eyes of a child. Since then, my aunt and uncle, they, they both are dead, but they both knew her. And I got a more rounded adult view picture of my mother through them. My sister, who was seven years older than me, so she was about eight when they adopted me, she's told me a lot. And that ability to talk about her has just been enormous. What words would you use to describe your grief now, 60 years later? Telling the story has kind of brought tears a little bit, but for the most part, my grief is pretty healthy. It's it's warm. It's loving. I've learned how to accept death as part of life. It's just made me feel lucky to have had her. I think it's made me a better dad, a better husband, a better friend. That grief is part of me, but I don't really see it as grief anymore. I see it as a loving relationship with someone who came and into my life and had her impact on me and left, as we all do. If you go back in time to when you were 10 and your mom died, and then you live with your dad for a year, and then you move in with your aunt and uncle who adopt you, is there anything the adults in your life could have done differently or done more of that would have been helpful in this process? I think the, the one thing would have been openness to just talk with me about her and about how I felt. I think I, I feel lucky that I was capable of carrying that grief and not letting it make me angry or resentful. But it really would have helped if I had been able to just talk about it and if the other people in my life, the adults in my life, had been able to talk about her with me. But I think they were uncomfortable with it. And wondering about it being 1955 and how little everyday conversation there was at that time period about grief and about loss. Like you said, the preacher showed up the next morning and said, your mom's in heaven, she's happy now, let's go back to school. Time to go back to school. Well, Jack, I really appreciate you coming in and sort of delving back into that story and letting it touch on some of those activation spots where there's still some pretty intense emotions. It's my pleasure. And listeners, thank you for being part of our conversation today as well. As I mentioned, this is one in a series of episodes looking at how grieving children have been supported or not supported over time. This is 1955. You can check out the 40s, the 70s, the 60s. Soon up will be the 80s. You can find all of our past episodes on our website, dougy.org, or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, however you're getting your podcast these days. If you have an idea for a topic, and thanks to everyone who has written in with an idea, or if you have someone you think would be a great guest, just send us an email at help at dougie.org. 
Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.